Welcome to the new RPS Pharmacine podcast, where we interview interesting people from the world of pharmacy and beyond. And we want to hear from you. Head to the RPS Twitter and hashtag RPS Pharmacine to have your say on who we should invite to the show and what you would like to ask our guests. Now, please welcome your hosts. Hello, everybody. I'm Gina Martini. I'm the Chief Scientist of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. I'm joined by our CEO, Paul Bennett. Uh, hello, Paul. How are you today? I'm very good, Gino. Great to be back with you. And Paul, you and I are both delighted uh, with our Farmside broadcast to have a very special guest today. Everyone, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Dame Sally Davies, UK Special Envoy of Antimicrobial Resistance and a friend of, of the RPS and has supporters on, on, on many occasions. Dame Sally was appointed as the first female Chief Medical Officer in 2010 and served nine years and has, of course, been followed by Professor Chris Whitty. He's also Master of Trinity College, Cambridge. Sally worked at the NHS as a consultant hematologist for 30 years and was the first UK medical practitioner to specialise in sickle cell disease before joining the civil service in 2004. She became Director General of Research and Development for the NHS, created the National Institute for Health Research, NIHR, and later played a central role in the establishment of Genomics England. Sally is best known for successfully paving the way for international and domestic efforts in the fight against antimicrobial resistance and leading UK's government response to health emergencies, including Ebola, pandemic flu, and the Novichok attacks. Dame Sally, welcome. Thank you very much, Gino and Paul. Great to be with you and the Royal Pharmaceutical Society again. After all, pharmacists are central to fighting disease and antimicrobial resistance. Yeah, thank you. And Sally, a really warm welcome. Um, actually, you, you just highlighted there the, the very uh, first issue that I'd, I'd like to ask a question about, which is antimicrobial resistance. It's a huge issue. And um, and the World Health Organization, uh, I believe, estimate that at, at least something like 700,000 people uh, die each year from drug-resistant uh, diseases. Yet, unlike our current pandemic, we, we don't see nightly statistics on the news, but it's arguably an issue of, of equal importance and in some way more intractable. Um, wh- why do you think uh, it's been so slow to reach the public consciousness? Thank you, Paul. I absolutely agree. We have antimicrobial resistance, AMR, these superbugs. There's a threat of really awful proportion to our whole planet. Actually, some new data that should be published um, any day now suggests that well over a million people die each year. So it's going up every year. In Europe, at least 33,000 people each year. If you look at TB, we've got at least 200,000 dying every year from multi-drug resistant TB alone. And in India, more than 60,000 newborns dying of resistant bacterial sepsis every year. So this is a tragedy and it doesn't have a face and we don't talk about the statistics, yet it impacts everyone. And it is clearly exacerbating inequality and inequality exacerbates AMR as well. You know, weak health systems, poor hygiene and sanitation contribute to the development of infections, the inappropriate use of antibiotics and resistance. And a piece of data that I've only just learnt, the rate of hospital-acquired infections in low-income countries is 20 times that in developed countries. So I've been talking um, during this COVID pandemic about a lobster. 
And COVID is the lobster dropped into boiling water and it's making an awful racket and it's dying. No one can ignore it. We all know it's there and it's tragic. But contrast that with the lobster put into cold water, slowly heating up, making no noise. No one notices it over there in the corner, just heating up, but it's going to die. And we've got to rescue that lobster and get it out because, you know, over the long term, there's going to be prolonged and aggravated suffering. And we may not see it under our noses, but it's happening. And it's because air miles an invisible killer. It doesn't have a face. People don't say, oh, my, my wife died of AMR. My wife might have died of cancer. An infection got her at the end and it was a bug that didn't respond or a fungus or a virus. But it's not a death from AMR. And we know as well that AMR travels, driven up by international travel, though at the moment that's lower, and migration. But again, we don't see it moving around. And up to 90% of antibiotics of animals and humans consumed are pooed and peed out. So even if you haven't consumed antibiotics, they're all around us. And combine that with the fact that 70% of the world have no community wastewater treatment or even sewers, then people are regularly exposed to drugs and drug-resistant bugs. So I would argue that the only people who aren't kept up at night by AMR are the ones who don't know about it. And we really do need a concrete picture. Look how people have been watching the news for the COVID data using the Johns Hopkins dashboard with real-time numbers of cases. We don't have anything comparable for AMR and we're going to need to. Yet the modeling that was done in 2016 uh, for the O'Neill review predicted that by 2050, some 30 years out, we would be losing 10 million people a year. Now, this really is, shouldn't be acceptable. And it's a challenge for us now, but it's a challenge for the, our future generations. We have to do something now. Sally, that, that's, I'm, I'm almost flabbergasted actually hearing those statistics. And, and as you say, the, the, perhaps the, the faceless silent killer here that, that AMR clearly is. And um, your point about um, exacerbating inequalities really, really resonates with us. I don't think I'm going to forget your lobster analogy. I think that's a, a really uh, eloquent way of, of describing the, the, the situation. Thank you for those insights. Um, Gina, I'm going to hand over to you for the next question. Sure, thank you, Paul. And actually, uh, uh, Sally, you've, you've laid out, I, I suppose, the, the problem statements uh, about the silent killer called AMR. So what are your, what are your top three priorities as the UK Special Envoy on, on AMR? Thank you. I'm really honoured to be the Special Envoy on antimicrobial resistance for the government. And I'm working at the policy level globally to try and shift things forward. So clearly, upfront at the moment comes delivering the UK's presidency of the G7 commitments. And we know that countries have got to work collectively together to tackle AMR, not just G7, but G20 multilaterally, and with the WHO, FAO, OIE, United Nations Environment Programme. But this year, I've been working with G7 to reach some ambitious commitments on AMR. So one of my priorities has to be delivering those so patients all over the globe can benefit. Through the G7 presidency, we're pushing for better stewardship of existing antibiotics, reinvigorating the development of new ones, 
while making sure the antibiotic supply chain is safe, secure, and transparent. And we need shared standards we can all rely on in the supply chain. The G7 under our UK leadership is aiming to strengthen R&D innovation and patient access across the whole world for everybody. So we've got to get countries to recognize antibiotics have a true value over and above the value to an individual patient. They're critical national and international infrastructure. Can you imagine a hospital system that doesn't have anti-infectives, antibiotics? They sit besides clean water and sanitation as essential infrastructure. They're global goods and their true value is in the availability, effectiveness and sustainability. I'm thrilled that our G7 finance and health ministries have committed to exploring concrete market incentives to bring new antimicrobials to patients. I really want us to drive forward progress that's being made already in the UK with our innovative Netflix subscription model run by NICE, the Pasteur Act in the US, which is very exciting, and the EU's pharmaceutical strategy, and then go as far and as fast as we can. But also in G7, we've persuaded the climate and environment ministers to commit to work with the AMR Industry Alliance and the UN Environment Programme to build knowledge about AMR in the environment and explore setting international standards for the safe release of antimicrobials into the environment. It's new area of work, but if we work at it together, we can surely make progress. And our health ministries have also agreed to work with industry to strengthen supply chain resilience through a broader, more geographically diverse, quality-assured manufacturing base. I can't believe it that at the moment we know where our clothes and food comes from, but not where our antibiotics come from. By mapping and strengthening supply chains for antibiotics, we can start to get a grip of this and crucially strengthen our fragile supply chains. So as an example, as of the end of June last year, 10.5% of drug shortages listed by the FDA in the US were antibiotic shortages. People die because we can't get the right antibiotics. This has to change. So G7 commitments is priority one. Second is, of course, raising public and political awareness. You can't move forward if we haven't got better awareness from everyone, public, uh, patients, consumers, individuals, everyone's got a role. And I'm really passionate that we bring in the young because this is really important to them, even if we haven't got them to understand that enough yet, but we'll work at it. We need that ripple effect of awareness, embedding AMR in children's education, getting them to learn about AMR, telling their friends, going home to the family and talking about it, as they often do now about climate change. There's a musical uh, with the children in it, The Mold That Changed the World. That's fantastic, encouraging pupils to join the AMR community. There's a group called Rollback AMR in uh, Zambia who've reached over 5 million people and they work with schools to educate them. They're fantastic. So we've got to get this public advocacy, political advocacy, hand in hand. And of course, we've got the new United Nations Global Leaders Group on AMR, bringing together prime ministers, ministers, private sector representatives. And I'm thrilled about the expertise, passion and and community within that group to which I'm honoured to belong. We're working collectively 
with the international community and the UN, bringing our ideas together, giving them light. And at long last, we've got a group, the Global Leaders Group, to give AMR a voice. So my third priority, you asked me for three, I could bore you for Britain all day about AMR, but the third is people are talking about a pandemic treaty. And it's absolutely essential that AMR is featured centrally in any pandemic treaty. It is the slow, silent pandemic and that financing is there. And clearly we've got to work with uh, countries on their national action plans, 135 countries have now written them. And I'm hoping that the Monti Commission that will report soon to the G20 will include um, not only AMR as they've promised, but actually include their recommendation that was in their draft report of making pandemic preparedness a part of the International Monetary Fund's Article 4 criteria. In that way, countries will be held to account and incentivized to invest in, in mitigating AMR. So we need all of that in any future pandemic treaty that world leaders establish. So please, pharmacists around the world, help us. Thank you, Sally. I think that's an amazing priority list. And I definitely agree with you about, you know, starting younger. We, we had a, a schools program educating young kids about hygiene and vaccination. And um, by our, we have an AMR group at the society led by Jackie Snedden. But Diane Asheru uh, and the team implemented this hand washing program. And I think it's really important. And, and, and the young kids really understand, don't they, about the environment as well and sustainability issues. And, and, and they do get it. So totally agree. Start, start young. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for that. Sally, you've given us some reasons for for some hope there, talking about public advocacy, uh, political advocacy and the formation of the Global uh, Leaders Group. I I, I wonder, though, um, what do you see as as being the major challenges in combating infectious disease and AMR over the next, say, five years? Let's start with COVID. It's a big challenge and a big opportunity. A challenge because we now have the data from wave one and all across the world, including in Britain, understandably, maybe, but too many antibiotics were prescribed by a long way. But an opportunity because everyone now understands about infectious pandemics and the damage they can do in terms of mortality, morbidity and socially, as well as to the economy. It's also demonstrated the need for data And we have this challenge of lack of surveillance and lack of R&D. So we've got to harness technology and data much better and see what we can draw across from COVID-19. Of course, getting the data right will help us strengthen health systems. And technology and data can drive collaboration across borders and languages. I'm very proud, for instance, of our UK Fleming Fund, which is a major international aid investment dedicated to AMR. It's got data at its heart, working in 22 countries in Africa and Asia. It's funded genome sequencing capacity in South Africa that's been used for the new COVID-19 variant. But it's also supported programs that really do develop people. We need an upgraded global surveillance system showing real-time clinical data for AMR, just like we've been using Johns Hopkins dashboard for COVID-19 and other things. That data must be openly accessible and free to see. We need transparency. I'm proud that at least one major company 
now shares its data on AMR. We need all of them to do that. We also need some rapid diagnostics. We've seen how they are game changers for COVID. They would be game changers for AMR. And there's a major program that we contribute to run out of the states called CARBEX. They're, for instance, funding a diagnostics company in California that can develop an electronic antibiotic susceptible testing device to identify if and what antibiotics are needed in just four hours instead of days. That would be wonderful. I also want to highlight how central data is to making the case politically and for investment. So, of course, the second major challenge, and that data will that makes it obvious, is the antibiotic market that's broken. The cost of developing, registering, and marketing antibiotics is a racing to the bottom because we pay so little for antibiotics. And you as pharmacists will know just this. Pharmaceutical companies have got so few incentives to invest in antibiotics. They saw a net loss of $100 million from 2014 to 2016, instead of, with their other drugs, big profits. And of the 75% late-stage antibiotics in the R&D pipeline, which are developed by SMEs, low returns risk low survival. You know, of the most recent eight new antibiotics to be registered, six were from small biotechs, two went bankrupt, and another was forced to merge to survive. That's not the story we want going forward. Only three major pharmaceutical companies are developing new antibiotics compared to 18 in 1980, which is the last decade that we saw a new class of antibiotics developed that came into routine clinical practice. You know as well as I do, our existing drugs are no match for superbugs. And actually, it's a bit like watching videos on tape as we used to, rather than the online streaming we're doing today. So we've got to move in a different way. We've got to revalue antibiotics, see them as more than a single prescription. We've got to balance innovation, access, stewardship, and build on the advances we've got. In England, our NHS is the first country in the world to trial a new system to secure a pipeline of innovative treatments. It's called the Netflix model. When we joke about it, it's a subscription model based on the value of those antibiotics to society, not on the volume of pills used. This benefits patients by guaranteeing the sustainable use and sustainable supply and a set price or, or amount of money to the companies. So it embeds stewardship and gives those companies certainty of demand. And they're very interested in this. I'm very excited by the reintroduction to the US Congress of the Pasteur Act, which would also put in place a, a subscription mechanism. But they're planning on investing $11 billion over 10 years based on the assessed value of drugs to patients. This would really make sure that patients covered by the federal insurance programs can access treatments at no cost while guaranteeing some revenue for the pharmaceutical companies. If this act's voted through, it'll send a signal to the whole world and take us a lot further in showing the challenging market problems can be overcome. Sally, thank you. I think your your point there, particularly around the criticality of of good data to enable governments and and health systems to make informed choices about how to respond, has certainly very much come through in in the the very latest terrible situation everybody's been in around the the COVID pandemic. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on those. As we move into the new normal, whatever that means, do, do you think it would be a good idea for people to continue to wear masks in public? 
uh, especially indoors and on public transport to reduce the spread of infections uh, in general, I suppose. Uh, it's been a common practice for many years now in Southeast uh, Asian countries. So I really do think that this coming winter, we do need to wear masks in crowded indoor places, shops, supermarkets, and on transport. I hope that as we come out of the bad periods of the pandemic and learn to live with COVID, that we'll move to where people wear masks, either because they're vulnerable or because they are worrying that they might pass something on. Uh, Though I think the days of staggering into work with a high temperature and bad sniffles, colds or flu should be over. So we need to find a way to wear masks when they're needed and the, the need has not yet gone away. And I think this current pandemic's made us all much more aware of the need to practice good hygiene, preventing and controlling infections. Washing hands matters now. It matters for flu and coughs and colds. But if we look around the world, we also know three billion people across the world lack access to soap and water. So we've got to move forward on changing that. And I'm really pleased that the UK is partnering with Unilever to provide hygiene projects to the parts of the world lacking sanitation. And there are mass awareness campaigns across traditional and social media tailored to communities to change behaviour on hand washing. Terribly important. And infection prevention and control has to be the core of a toolkit in containing infections and therefore AMR, as are vaccines. I mentioned earlier the inspirational rollback antimicrobial resistance initiative in Tanzania and their school projects with arts, crafts and even drama is just amazing. It's a wonderful exemplar. I think we've also got to remember that for some countries, antibiotics are used to compensate for weak health systems and poor sanitation. We've got to get to the root of this problem, mobilising funds to implement their national action plans on AMR which are really national action plans to prevent uh, infections and treat the infections effectively with access and stewardship. Because if we can do that, then we will be able to mitigate AMR. We'll also need innovation, but we need to make sure that across the world they have access to IPC, WASH and antibiotics. As it happens, uh, the Royal Pharmaceutical Society has advised uh, our members, certainly those on the front line, to it'd be advisable to wear, to wear face masks, particularly in the next couple of months anyway. So we're, we're, we're totally in, in line with your, with your comment. Sally, as, as this is the PharmSci uh, podcast of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, you probably expect me to ask uh, the, the next question, um, so I won't disappoint. Um, in, in your view, how do you think pharmacists can play a role in combating AMR and and promoting improved hygiene? Well, I think pharmacists are central to this. I thought it all along, but as I've watched, I've seen um, pharmacists rise to the challenge. You're on the front line of dispensing and prescribing antimicrobials all around the world. And we look to you to act as responsible stewards and help people understand the issues. Um, One wonderful example is the Commonwealth Partnerships for Antimicrobial Stewardship, CW PAMS, who leverage the expertise in pharmacy of UK hospitals and health institutions, volunteers and technical experts to work with Ghana, Tanzania, Uganda and Zambia, strengthening the capacity 
of their national pharmacist workforce. And it's amazing what these pharmacists together have done uh, on behalf of the Commonwealth. Um, you know, they've got tools and resources to support stewardship and prescribing. 20 new or revised documents on antibiotic prescribing, antimicrobial prescribing act that gives access to health workers for national antimicrobial guidelines. I, I love this one, a stewardship board game donated to overseas institutions to introduce them to IPC surveillance and stewardship. And another example of the good work, the Brighton-Lusaka partnership early in COVID produced a wonderful educational video teaching local pharmacy teams in Zambia how to make hand sanitizer. So pharmacists are everywhere and key. They have a very central role in drawing attention to and combating the global challenge posed by substandard and falsified medicines. Do you know, the WHO reckon that one in 10 medical products in low and middle income countries are substandard or falsified. Interestingly, one of our Fleming Fund fellows is a pharmacist at the Food and Drugs Authority of Ghana. And with her colleagues, this pharmacist takes samples of drugs to laboratories for analysis and inspects manufacturing facilities to ensure that companies have valid licenses. And they also work to uh, encourage patients to report abnormal side effects to hospital, pharmacy or pharmacovigilance app. Pharmacists at the centre, making sure that patients get their medicines from authentic sources. When patients go to pharmacies, we know that everything's done properly. Issues can be reported, traced and investigated. So thank you for all the work your members and pharmacists around the world do. Sally, thank you. I'm sure our, our listeners and our members will be really inspired and actually motivated by those uh, warm words uh, of recognition and, and encouragement. Thank you for that. Something that, that's really concerning us all at, at, at the moment is the issue of climate change and the crisis that, that we're in at the moment. I, I, I wonder, what, what's your view about the, the impact of, of antibiotics on the environment? And what do you think pharmacy can do to help minimise the environmental impact? When I started advocating and campaigning about AMR back in 2013, it had not crossed my mind how complicated this would be. It's like a jigsaw. And every time I pick up a piece and look at it, turn it over, I think, oh no, some other massively complex system we've got to work with. And the environment is one of those that we're beginning to realise there's a problem, but not getting through yet to all of the solutions. We know now that the environment is definitely a vector of transmission of infection, but AMR too, and most people don't know it. Interestingly, last year, in the world's biggest study of antibiotics in water, rivers, it found that over two-thirds of more than 700 samples from around the globe had got antibiotics in them. The highest values were, not surprisingly, in Africa and Asia, including such high concentrations of metronidazole in a river in Bangladesh, they were 300 times higher than what the AMR Industry Alliance suggests as a safe environmental concentration. And we know that ciprofloxacin has been measured during a pilgrimage time in the Ganges, and it reaches levels that we try and get in the plasma for treatment. So we've got the world's greatest signal threats, AMR and climate change colliding, driving each other, into existential levels of danger. And Northern Ireland researchers have looked at marine plastics and they've shown how they get 
um, biofilms and spread drug resistant microbes through our seas and oceans. So not only we've got the plastic, but they are making AMR travel around the world. And this large surface area of microplastics is really luxury accommodation for the bacteria. And you get a sludge around it. Um, a study looking at microplastics in wastewater treatment plants found genes for AMR in many of the sites associated with microplastics. And eight types of resistant bacteria highly enriched in the biofilm of the microplastics. But in Australia, scientists have discovered the presence of a type of resistant bacteria called Enterobacteriales in green sea turtles on the Great Barrier Reef. 37.7% of the samples studied were multidrug resistant. And then we've got studies looking into antibiotic manufacturing. And an example in Hyderabad indicated air, water and soil contamination around the pharmaceutical facilities being significantly contaminated by chemicals and APIs because of the production of antibiotics. There's even a colleague measured an extreme case of discharge levels of ciprofloxacin. This is mind boggling. 44 kilos per day, enough to treat a city of 44,000 inhabitants, leading to concentrations a thousand times higher than toxicity for bacteria, just pouring into the water system. But it's not only driving climate change, AMR, and being driven, but climate emergencies. The Australian bushfire last year, during that catastrophe, over 800 million animals were lost, including lots of koalas. And they were burnt and vulnerable to finding safety. And so they were treated with antibiotics. But they were antibiotics where resistance can develop. And then you can't te- treat the chlamydia that koalas keep getting. So really a vicious circle there. Lots of progress happening. The Indian government in 2020 drafted legislation I'm hoping post-COVID they can put it into practice, but about limits on levels of antibiotic residues that the pharmaceutical manufacturing sites can release into wastewater. Wouldn't it be great for other countries to follow suit? And we're, we're kind of pushing them to do that. And then, as I said earlier, under the UK's G7 presidency, the environment and climate health and health ministers are going to look at developing and implementing sustainable solutions to uh, mitigate, minimise the release of antimicrobials into the environment. We're going to work with United Nations Environment Programme, the other um, UN organisations, regulators and academics and industry from G7 to learn more about it. And then we want to move to international standards on safe release of antimicrobials into the environment. But there's a lot of work to do, and I do worry about this. Sally, thank you. I think you, you've described there the, the, the phrase, the, the, the almost the perfect storm here of climate emergency, AMR crisis, pandemics for us to deal with, and 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 all of the implications and complications that arise from from that. It's a it's a troubling time, and and I think I've just heard a very sound and strong clarion call for for action. Thank you so much on behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society for taking the time to talk about your special role uh, as ambassador and, and the work that you're doing for, for antimicrobial resistance. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Gina and Paul. It's lovely to talk to you and through you to pharmacists because you are a key bit of our workforce in the UK and all across the world. 
So thank you for what you do. Thank you for listening to the new RPS Pharmacy podcast out every other Friday. Don't forget to get involved and have your say using the hashtag RPS Pharmacy. See you in two weeks' time.